Hello, everyone. This is Victor Jackson. Welcome to the Bible Centered Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Bible Centered with Victor Jackson. Uh, I want to thank each of you for your support, uh, your kindness in the comments. We are receiving uh, comments from around the world and how this podcast has been a blessing. Uh, we thank you for your support. Uh, we thank you for listening. And we're so thankful for the opportunity to share the word of God. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the life of Jacob. And there's so many things to take from his life. Um, and we're going to do somewhat of a character study. Because there's things in Jacob's life that are so applicable to us, but you have to dig the research out to really get an understanding of what God was doing in his life. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 22, it says that Isaac was... Isaac and Rebekah, they were barren. Uh, she was barren for about 20 years. Um, and the Bible says that Rebekah finally conceived. And it says in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 25, verse 22, it says, And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And in verse 26 it says, And after that his brother came out, his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bear them. So we need to talk about this. This is just, oh man, I'm so excited about this episode today because the the beauty and the and the meat and the, and the substance uh, that is in this text is is a marvel to behold. N number one, we have to think about how Jacob came to be. Isaac was single and Abram sent his servant on a task to find Isaac a wife. And this servant, he sent a servant back to the land that he came from. He sent his servant on a 550-mile journey to find his promised son the right wife. And that's an entire message in itself. It, it, it is better to wait and travel far to marry the right one uh, than to marry the wrong one because you're lonely and they're in a convenient location. I told someone the other day, it's amazing how people start looking cute uh, when you're lonely. Y'all not hearing me out there. Y'all not hearing me. The listener's not, listen, not hearing me out there. It's amazing how after you've been single for a while, how everybody starts looking better. And the convenience of location uh, causes people to uh, make some decisions based off of loneliness instead of obedience. He sends his servant to Isaac for Isaac. He sends him on a 550-mile journey with 10 camels. And these camels are laden with the wealth of Abraham. The, the, the servant goes and goes on the journey. And when he goes on the journey, he travels 550 miles and then he comes to a well. And when he comes into this well, he says, he prays a peculiar prayer. He says, Lord, let the person that's going to marry Isaac, my master's son, he said, let her, let, let this be the sign that she, this is the one. He said, let her draw water for me and my camels. Amen. I don't know about you, but that is probably the strangest prayer I've ever heard with that important of a task. He says, Lord, 
let this be the sign. Let her give me water and my camel's water. Amen. And that'll be the one. It's a, it's a peculiar prayer, but it's a powerful prayer. Why? Because it was very common for a woman to offer a stranger water, but it was very uncommon for her to offer the camel's water. Why? Because you do not know when a camel is going to be done drinking. And a thirsty camel can drink 30 gallons of water in 15 minutes. And he had 10. And and so Rebecca comes immediately when he's done praying and she offers him water and she says, and I'll offer your camel's water. She was willing to draw 300 gallons of water for a stranger. That's 2,500 pounds of water from a well that she was willing to draw from a complete, for a complete stranger. And she didn't realize that the servanthood that she was doing now was tied to her destiny. That's why I tell people never marry someone based on potential. You always want to marry someone based on what they are now. I didn't plan on talking about marriage, but this is the story. This is the Bible. Genesis 24 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible, and it's all about marriage. It's all about Isaac finding Rebecca. Uh, Isaac marrying Rebecca. That was what that whole chapter was about. And so I have to spend time to build up to chapter 25. We have to understand chapter 24. And so with that being said, uh, guys, I'm so excited. I'm so excited about this this episode because there's just a lot of depth, a lot of of things I want to get into here. And so I tell people, don't, don't, don't marry based on potential, marry based on reality. Meaning, are they, you know, I, I, I've heard people say like, yeah, uh, this, this girl, she's a prayer warrior in the future. Uh, she loves God or he loves God. Uh, he will one day. You always want to make your decisions based off of where they are now and what they are exampling now. And so Rebecca is willing to draw 300 gallons of water for a stranger and for his camels, for his 10 camels. Now one camel drinks 30 gallons of water in 15 minutes. He has 10, and the Bible says she gave them the drink until they were filled. And she had no idea that her service that she was doing was tied to her becoming the most powerful woman in the tribe, the matriarch. And we never know what's the application, Pastor. Here's the application. The application is, You never know the present service that you're doing in the shadows and obscurity, how it is tied to your destiny and where it's taking you. So you just want to do the best that you can with what you have. Give the best that you can. Some of the greatest open doors that came in my life was whenever um, I was over 3,000 miles away from home. And I ministered uh, to 15 people, you know, in, in, a, in a community center. And I gave a hundred thousand percent, just like I would preaching, you know, to thousands of people. I, people that know me, they know that I give 110% in everything. I don't care if it's five people. I don't care if it's 500,000 people. You get the same Victor Jackson. So I gave myself there, and that led to doors at different conferences and different. This person, this pastor of this small church of 15, 20 people, uh, you know, he was he was known in some way, and it led to me, you know, traveling in different parts of the nation because I gave myself to the small task that is before me. And it was tied to my destiny. Uh, you may be driving to work. You may be in school. You, you may be ha- having to do some mundane tasks today. But you don't know what God judges our faithfulness and how we're able to be faithful over a few things 
if we, if we can handle being ruler over many things. So give yourself to that because it may be tied to your destiny. Uh, you may be working at Burger King, but but you are at the window and you're taking somebody's order and you meet them at the window and you're kind and you're and you're compassionate and you show value to them. You never know that person could look at you and say, you know what? I need someone like you at my multi-billion dollar company. Just like that. You're just serving somebody. You're just doing something simple, but it's tied to your future. So you always want to be careful with how you treat people and how you treat moments because God's watching and you never know there could be an opportunity in just bringing up some water from the well for somebody. They meet, the servant brings her back to Abram and Isaac, Isaac Caesar. They get married, 20 years of marriage. They're barren. They have no children. Finally, in 20 years, you don't hear of Isaac and Rebekah praying. Isn't that interesting? For 20 years, they don't even make a petition to God. 20 years of barrenness, they don't cry out. But the Bible says that Isaac entreated the Lord because there's nothing that gets a man to pray more than when his legacy is threatened. And that his legacy being threatened caused him to pray. There's something about when hell touches the family, something about when hell starts touching things that are precious, where you're trying to build something and hell is touching legacy that brings a man out of the darkness, brings a man out of, out of the apathy, brings a man out of, out of sleep, and it wakes up a sleeping giant to go lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I'm coming back to God. Something about those situations that pushes us closer to God. He entreats the Lord. He cries out to the God. And after he entreats the Lord, the Bible says, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, Rebekah doesn't pray until verse 22, where it says that the children struggled together within her. Now, now that's so powerful to me because you see God dealing with the psyche of man and women. You see, with, with what God does is with man is he uses man's mind to get to his heart. Oh, my Isaac started thinking about his legacy being threatened, and it led to an emotional response. He uses man's mind to get to his emotions. But what he does with the woman is he uses the woman's emotions to get to her mind. That's powerful to me because she didn't pray until a struggle occurred. And there's something about when a woman is in a struggle that she can go to the depths of intercession like man can never go. A woman that's in a fight, a woman that is in a struggle emotionally, it, it begins to pull her into a place in God where he uses those emotions to persuade her of her identity and who she is. Something about a woman crying where she says, you know what, I'm, I'm not dealing with this anymore. You see, it was the emotions that brought a change of mind. But what God does with a man is he will move on a man's mind to persuade him to open up emotionally. God is incredible. And male and female, it reflects God's image. They reflect different sides of God. And, and it's powerful, the, the, the compatibility when he brings a man and a woman together and they become one. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm just so excited to talk to you guys. I hope you guys are being blessed uh, listening. But I'm getting somewhere with the life of Jacob. But uh, this is what you call building up. And so finally, after the children struggle within her, she cries out and prays. And after she prays, God releases destiny to her. It says, there's two nations in your womb. Now, I want to get here because Jacob isn't even born yet and he's already in a struggle. His whole life would be defined by a struggle. He would struggle for everything. He would struggle with Laban. He would struggle with his brother. He would struggle with the angel. He would spend his whole life in a struggle. 
But there's something beautiful to be applied here. And while he's in the struggle, the Bible says his his brother is born first. And while he's yet in the womb, he reaches up to grab Esau's heel to try to pull him down so he could be born first. This is profound because Jacob wants the birthright before he's even born. He wants the birthright before he has any any proper consciousness. The conscious in the womb develops, you know, three to six months and it grows and they have some type of cognitive ability. But in the womb, before he takes his first breath, he already wants something that's not his. Subconsciously, he wants the birthright before he's even born. And this would define his whole life because because the trajectory of his life really shifts after the exchange between Esau and Jacob. And the Bible says that the children grew and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his deer, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I want to tell you this, uh, that's in verse 28 of Genesis 25. It says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is what you call a dysfunctional family because the parents have favorites. He's raised in a dysfunctional environment. Uh, Isaac loves Esau, but Rebecca loves Jacob. So what's happening is both children are raised in a performance household. Jacob's trying to do what he can to please his dad, and Esau's trying to do what he can to please his mom. It was a toxic environment, um, a dysfunctional environment. <coughs> that that created the chain of events that would later come. The Bible says that Esau loved pottage and Jacob would make pottage all the time. And in verse 30, it says that Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint, therefore was his name called Edom. Listen to the structure of this text. This is why, guys, it it can take me two two hours to read two chapters in the Bible because I've got to get it. I've got to get what's happening here. So it says that Esau came because he was hungry, and he says, feed me with that same red pottage. Here it is. That means this wasn't the first time he came to Jacob for pottage. He said the same red pottage. This was a recurring event and Jacob was watching his steps. And the Bible says that he came for the same red pottage. Therefore was his name called Edom. See later, you never see Esau's lineage being called the Esauites. They're always called the Edomites, but it says that they're was called Edom because of going for the same red pottage. Now, the Hebrew word for Edom is red. So Esau became defined by what he pursued. See, Jacob pursued the angel and he became Israel. Esau pursued the pottage and he became Edom. We are defined by what we pursue. They are the Edomites, and you would look at his lineage in their whole life. They are defined, all the Edomites, they're defined by pursuing carnal things over spiritual things. So this decision sets something in motion. Jacob says, sell me me your birthright. Esau says, listen, I'm, I'm about to die of hunger. What profit shall this birthright do to me? He says, well, swear to me that you'll give it to me. And look what verse 34 says of Genesis 25. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, this is incredible because he 
Look at the progression here. It says that Esau ate, drank, rose up, went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. See, he didn't despise his birthright when he ate it. He didn't despise his birthright when he drank. He didn't despise his birthright when he rose up. But when God saw him go his own way, he said, you have despised your birthright. It was as if God was waiting in the shadows on repentance, waiting on him at the last minute to say, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Even while he was eating it, God was waiting in the shadows for him to repent. Even while he was drinking, when he rose up, but when God saw him walk his own way, he said, you have despised your birthright. Something about choosing his will and his way over God's way. These are, these are lessons to learn about staying surrendered to God's will and God's plan in our life, even when we don't understand it. Later, the Bible would say that Isaac gets, gets old and he's old with age and dim with vision and he wants to release the blessing on Esau, tells him, go get that good venison and Rebecca overhears and... and works with Jacob to try to fool this nearly blind elder. I love the Bible because the Bible never hides the humanity of the heroes. This is how you can trust the Bible because it doesn't make the heroes mythological. It really captures their humanity. It captures Abraham lying. It captures Isaac lying. It captures Jacob lying. It captures David's sin with Bathsheba. It captures Joseph and his naivety of telling his brother's dream. It, it, it captures Noah getting drunk. It captures all of these heroes, even John the Baptist, you know, doubting when he's in the prison cell. It shows the humanity of the heroes, and this is why you can trust it, because in the time of the Bible being written, any hero, you always made their stories mythological. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's beautiful to see the humanity of them two conniving to fool a man struggling with a handicap. And so the Bible says that Jacob puts on this dresses up with goat's hair to fool his dad to try to pretend like he's Esau so Esau so Isaac can put the blessing on him puts on goat's hair now now I love the bible and the irony that's here because Jacob fools his father with goat's hair later his sons would fool him with goat's blood See, what one generation does in moderation, the next generation does in excess. See, Jacob just skinned the goat, but his sons would later kill the goat. And they would fool him because they sold Joseph away to slavery and they got his coat and they put goat's blood on it to fool Jacob and say, see, your son has been eaten by wolves. He's been killed. And so the deception that Jacob uses to fool his dad, later his sons would use that same deception to fool him. Beautiful principles to draw out in the word of God. But one generation does in moderation, the next generation does in excess. And that could be a positive or a negative. Um, if one generation's compromising God's truths, the next generation is going to do it in excess. If one generation is worshiping and loving God with everything in them, the next generation is going to do it in excess. They're going to love him more. They're going to be more devoted and committed to him. Beautiful things to draw from the word of God. Now, he fools him. Isaac releases the blessing. And when Isaac releases the blessing on him, Jacob goes out, Esau comes back in, and when Esau comes back in, Isaac says, Who, who's, who's this coming into my tent? Esau said, it's me, your firstborn. And Isaac says, 
that he trembled. He trembled. He said, he says it like this in verse 30, 33. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it to me? And I have eaten of all before you came in and have blessed them. And then he says these profound words, Yea, and he shall be blessed. Wow. Isaac finds out that Jacob lied to get the blessing. And Isaac says, he, he came in and took your blessing. He said, your brother came with subtility and he hath taken away thy blessing. But then he says this, but he shall be blessed. That's profound. That God would honor the blessing on somebody that lied to get it. You see a glimpse of the mercy and the grace of God. It's just, it's just undeserving. It's really unmerited favor. And now that sets in, into path, Jacob having to flee, his mom sends him away to go find a wife. He, he goes to Pendanaram. And he leaves on this journey. And on this journey, this is where... I want to draw the application uh, part of this message because there, there are interesting things here. We might have to do a part one and part two um, because of the depths that, that are in the life of Jacob. So Jacob is, is sent away and he went from Beersheba and went toward Haran and in chapter 28 and verse 11, it says, And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Listen to this, verse 12. And he dreamed and behold, a ladder set upon the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou liest, to thee will I give it into thy seed. See, when you read this chapter, you think you're just seeing Jacob's journey uh, going toward Pandanaram. But God is showing us something about Jacob's character and how God is intervening in Jacob's life. Because it's not coincidence that God would say, on his journey back to Mesopotamia, where his grandfather came from, the Bible says that he took of the stones of that place on his way to Mesopotamia, and he put them for his pillows and laid down in that place to sleep. Why would scripture tell us this? This is where we're getting into some systematic theology where biblical theology is where you can find the meaning within the pages of the text and you use the text to interpret the text. Systematic theology is not only using the text, but also using outside sources, historical sources, accurate historical sources to help interpret the text, to see the culture and the historical cultural context of which these people are operating in. So why would he take, the stones of that place and put them for his pillows. Here's why is because Mesopotamia is the country that invented the pillow. Oh, I want y'all to go do this research today. Mesopotamia is the first country in the world and in history to invent the pillow. Some historians estimate that they invented it in 7,000 BC. Some 
come up with, you know, uh, 6,500 BC, 6,700 BC, but a rough estimate, about 7,000 BC. He's going back to Mesopotamia. Listen. And he understands that there is a custom that they made the pillows. Why is this important? Because at this time, only the wealthy had access to pillows. And these pillows were made of stone. It's not, it wouldn't be till hundreds of years later that they would bring up the concept of putting feathers into making a pillow. No, these pillows were hard pillows. They were made of stone. They were found in palaces. They, they, were, they were hard. But it was only the wealthy that used pillows. So Jacob is watching his life being cast away from him and this dream of being used by God or being some important person, you know, within the context of his life with family, he's seeing that fading before his eyes and he's being pushed into back, go back to Mesopotamia where his grandfather came from. So what he does is he starts trying to get ready to adopt the lifestyle of the Mesopotamians. Listen, feeling abandoned, even feeling abandoned by God. He says, I'm going to go back to Mesopotamia, but I'm going to put my head on these pillows, believing that God's going to make me wealthy there, that, that somehow I'm going to be wealthy there. Jacob is having a crisis between in his relationship with God because he trusted God and all that's happened since he trusted God is getting pushed out of, out of the arms of his mom. Now he's in a dark place by himself in the middle of nowhere. So he's like, man, I might as well go back to how grandfather started. He started in Mesopotamia. Hopefully I can make some money. Hopefully I can be, hopefully I can, I can be rich and wealthy. Hopefully I'll have a pillow there. That like he doesn't know what's gonna come of his life. So you ever you ever had a promise from God and it's almost like you had to you didn't see it come to pass. You don't see it come to pass, so you kind of settle for like a plan B. You like a healthy compromise. You're like, oh well, you know, plan A didn't work. Uh maybe maybe God meant plan B. Maybe, and then that doesn't work. Maybe God meant plan C. Maybe God meant plan D. Because you, you can't even see how plan A is ever going to work again. So this is Jacob believing for the blessing of God upon his life. But all that's happened is leaving family. All that's happened is being thrown out of, out of mom's house. All that's happened is now his brother wants to kill him. He took a step of faith and it didn't work out well. So he's scared to death. And he places these stones and he puts them for pillows because in Mesopotamia, all the wealthy families had pillows made of stone. But this is why this is important because he dreams a dream. And this dream that he dreams is a Mesopotamian dream. See, in Mesopotamia, they had something called ziggurats and a ziggurat is these stairways you've probably seen them it's like a triangular stairway that goes into towards the heavens and what they believe these mesopotamians in their culture they believed in their religion that the angels of god ascended and descended on this ladder but they believed that their God dwelt at the top of the ladder. And so Jacob has a Mesopotamian dream of a ziggurat. And if you go to that area, I believe there's still ziggurats that exist. It's the stairways. These are stairways to heaven pointed up to the sky where they believe angels of God ascended and descended and their gods were on top of that uh, ziggurat, that ladder. 
He has a Mesopotamian dream, but the difference is the Bible says that the Lord stood above it. Wow. So he has a Mesopotamian religious dream. He thinks that he's going to go back to Mesopotamia, adopt their customs, adopt their religion, go back to where his dad came from, where his grandfather came from, Abraham. So he has a Mesopotamian dream, Mesopotamian religious dream, but the Bible says the difference is that the Lord stood above it. And what God was saying was, you cannot confine me to that Mesopotamian religious system. I am I am greater than that. I am bigger than that. You cannot restrict me into those systems of man. I am bigger than that. I am greater than that. And God speaks to him, not on the ziggurat, but above it. Here's why you have to look at the word of God here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. And I know it's I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm going to get to this, but I'm telling you, this is worth the wait. This you just you just walked in on our longest episode. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it is gonna be worth it. So there comes a point whenever Jesus speaks in John 1, I believe it is, and it's in John chapter 1, verse 51. I want you to listen to what Jesus tells them after they call him rabbi. Oh, guys, I'm so excited to get into this. This is so powerful. Remember, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself to Jacob standing above the ladder, this above the ziggurat. I am greater than your religion. I'm greater than that. You cannot confine me. I am bigger than that. But look what happens when Jesus speaks. Jesus, fully God, fully man. Jehovah, our Savior. John chapter 1, verse 51, it says, and he saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the heavens open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Wow. See, in the Old Testament, God stands above the ladder. But in the New Testament, God comes under the ladder. He says, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He said, see, when I spoke to you in the Old Testament above the ladder, abstract, out of reach, you couldn't understand me. So I am going to manifest myself in the flesh and a body, and I'm going to bring my body under that religious ladder because I know that when your religion kills me, you'll finally see me. My Lord, have mercy. See, you couldn't understand me when I was above it, so I put my body under it and allowed the ladder allowed the religion to kill me before you can finally see me. This is what happened. This is what Peter preaches in Acts 2 where he tells the Jews, he says, your, your sins, you put them on the cross. You, you, you send them to the determinate council. Your, your religion, you put them on the cross. You put them on the cross. And the Bible says that when they saw that, the Bible says that they were pricked in the heart and they said, what shall we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is unto you and unto your children and to many as many as are far off, even as the Lord our God shall call. You see, and the Bible says 3,000 people saw it. Oh, my Lord. 3,000 people were baptized that day. You see, when they saw that the 
religious system killed him, they finally saw him. But God said, I have to bring my body under the ladder for you to finally see me. This is why this is important. You see, you're just reading it. Oh, he saw the ladder and and the Lord stood above it. But now in the New Testament, God brings his body under it. This is what he said in Philippians, that he said that he, he humbled himself in the form of a servant. One translation says he emptied himself. My goodness, I love the word of God. That he who, who possessed everything became nothing for us. He who had all this, the riches in heaven was in, came in poverty that we might become rich. He comes under the ladder. He leaves the sound of angels clapping. He leaves the sound of angels dancing. He leaves the sound of of worship in the heavenlies. He leaves the walls of Jasper, the pearly gates. He leaves the streets of gold. He leaves the chorus singing unto his name to come down and be born and raised and put in a manger, not in a palace, but to be killed and crucified for us. He came under the ladder. He came under it and allowed our religious ambitions. These were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests and the scribes. These were ambitious religious leaders, the rulers of the synagogue. He allowed them and uh, and he allowed them to push, push him and pressure him and finally nail him to a cross because it was the only way that they would see him. To wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. On the cross, he took on the full wrath of God. The Bible says he became a curse because curse is every man that hangs on a tree. He became a curse on that tree for us. No matter what, whatever, what, any curse that, you, that, that has been spoken over your life, Jesus took it on the cross. And through his blood, the curse is broken but he had to come under the ladder. These are little things to see in, 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 this, in this text. And so he gets to see God above the ladder, and when he sees God above the ladder, we get to witness Jacob's process. And after this vision happens, the Bible says that he woke up out of the dream and says, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? He said, this is the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Look what he does. Then he rises up early in the morning, took the stone that he had took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Listen to this. And later he would go on in verse 22 of Genesis 28, verse 22. And it says it this way. And this stone, which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. This, did you see the process here? It went from a pillow, a stone to a pillow to a pillar to a house. And we see the process unfolding in his relationship with God. He goes and dwells with Laban. And we saw how that turned out. All of a sudden, he's married now to Rachel and uh, Leah because of uh, Laban's subtle deception and he finally flees from Laban's house after many years but he knows that he's going to have to meet Esau if he's going to go back to his homeland so he's very worried about that because they left on bad terms And the Bible says that Laban and Jacob, they they confront one another. They they fix everything between them. 
And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 31 and verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us and Jacob swear by the fear of his father Isaac. Now, one day I'm going to teach a lesson on this that I'm going to call the fear of Isaac because it's mentioned a few times, the fear of Isaac. He swore by the fear of Isaac. This is a this is going to be an interesting study when we do our study on Isaac one day uh, because notice that Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel, but Isaac's name never changes. Isaac didn't need a transforming moment. He was consistent. He had a consistent fear and reverence for the promises of God that were spoken over his father. And he walked in alignment with that fear and reverence. And it was so prevalent that Jacob said, I swear by the fear of Isaac. He didn't need a name change. He was consistent. But the Bible says that after he leaves Laban's house, chapter 32 and verse 1, it says, and Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. We see his relationship with God growing because he has this vision. These angels are speaking to him and, and that's, that's powerful. But now he's beginning his journey back and the angels of God met him. And there are those times in our life where we don't have to struggle to enter into the presence of God, but we come and it's just like we're surrounded by a heavenly host where it just seems like everything's going going right. It's like coming into a church service and and everyone's clapping and it's just this chorus. This is just it's just a beautiful thing. And you can receive things from God like that. It's when God takes the initiative in your life where you're not even looking for him but he just takes the initiative in, in your life. And he says, I want to do this in you. I want to, I want to open this. You're, it's not even on your radar, but all of a sudden the angels of God met you. And God says, I want to do this. And I want to open this up. And that's what happened with Mary. Whenever the angels, the angel of God met her, she wasn't seeking for the angel. The angel was seeking for her. And the angel comes with the promise that would just completely mess up Mary's calendar. This angel shows up with a promise and just completely says, hey, hey, you, we, you, you're going to you're favored and blessed. You have been chosen. You know, God wants to, you know, be born out of out of your your womb. The savior of the world is going to be born out of your womb. You as a virgin, an angel shows up with that. See, Mary wasn't seeking for that. An angel just showed up, and there are those moments in our life where we're not even seeking for answers. We're not even seeking, but God just gives us answers. He just reveals himself. He just, he just gives it to us. He just, he just pours out his blessing on us. And it's, a, and, it's a, and it's a powerful thing when God goes out of his way to make sure that he meets us and the angels of God meet us. And there's powerful things that happen whenever we're around that heavenly host um, it's when God initiates. And so chapter 32 and verse 1 is when God initiated something in Jacob's life. But then we see a shift in the relationship that Jacob has with God because in Genesis chapter 32, the same chapter, verse 24, the Bible says, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against them, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint and he wrestled with them. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And so this is the name change. He says, well, what's your name? He said, it's Jacob. And he said, your name's not going to be called Jacob anymore, but Israel for as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and has prevailed. So now we see a growth here in Jacob's life that now it's not the angels of God meeting him, but now he's meeting the angels. We see an aggression where the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and the violent take it by force, where he says, now the angels of God came around me and I was blessed, but the problem is I wasn't changed. I didn't get a name change. 
I, I didn't get a name change. And how many times do we get in God's presence and it's like, we're still the same? Where, where yes, we may have saw things and saw other people get blessed. The angels of God met us, but we're not changed. So somewhere in the process of the angels of God meeting him, he says, listen, I'm not, I'm not content for the angels of God to just meet me. I'm about to meet the angel. And I'm about to grab a piece of heaven and I'm not letting go until there's a transformation in my life. I preached a message years ago where I said, you will never become Israel until you are sick of being Jacob. And somewhere Jacob got fed up with being a liar, a supplanter, a usurper, a deceiver, which is what his name means. And he said, I'm going to grab a piece, this angel. The angel touched this the hollow of his thigh, his thigh began to shrivel up, but now he's holding on and said, I'm not letting go. I need a transformation. I need something from God. I'm tired of coming to church and just feeling his presence, but no change happening. I'm tired of coming to church and, and, and yes, the angels of God met us. Oh yeah. Great song. Oh, great worship. Oh man. Okay. Cool, cool sermon. But I'm tired of going back to my day to day. It's the same over and over. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I'm still struggling with depression. I'm still struggling with anxiety. I'm still struggling with fear. Yes. I'm a faithful Christian. Yes. I do the best I can, but I'm tired of just, of just, yes, yes, yes. Yes, the angels are all around me. Yes, his presence is all around me. But I, I need to take a piece of that. And I've got an aggression. And I'm not leaving the prayer room until something changes in me. I'm not leaving for this fast until something changes in me. I'm going to read as many chapters in the Bible as I can because I need the word of God to be engrafted in me. I'm not leaving this spot until something gets a hold of me, till, the, till heaven becomes a part of me. We see that shift in, in Jacob because he's receiving a visitation, a dream in Genesis 28, and now he's receiving a visit in Genesis 32. But now at the end of Genesis 32, he said, I need a change and I'm not letting go until you bless me. There's something powerful when we get aggressive going after God. We need to be aggressive in our pursuit for God. It says, your name's not going to be Jacob, but it's going to be Israel. And now Jacob's limping after this transformative moment. We need an encounter with God where we just don't walk the same anymore. We just don't walk the same. It's a little limp now because I'm not trusting in my flesh anymore. I'm not trusting in who I am anymore. I'm trusting in God over everything. His walk changed. And the Bible says, that he goes and meets Esau and they wept together. They reconcile. And he says that in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 33, he says, and Jacob said, nay, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand, for therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou was pleased with me. Now, Jacob has such a transformation in his walk that he doesn't see Esau as Edom. He says, I've seen your face as if I've seen the face of God. See, his, his, his transformation that happened with the angel affected his outward relationships. He sees his brothers differently. See, you have to see the face of God before you can see your brother's face as the face of God. See, he, he had a wrestling match with something from heaven so he could see something from heaven in his brother. And his, hor his vertical relationship affected his horizontal relationships. We see something growing in Jacob's walk with God that is profound. And we are going to do a part two here. We are going to do a part two. We're, we're, this is, this, this is part one. I, I've been, I've been going, uh, for about 50, 51 minutes. And so, uh, I thank you for staying on. I'm just, I'm just excited about this, this, I'm just excited about the Bible. I'm excited about the book. 
but I'm going to get into part two uh, next time. But let me close out this session for after he meets Jacob, after Jacob meets Esau, after this encounter with the angel, you got to go to Genesis 35 because there comes a moment that God speaks to Jacob telling him to go back to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar unto God. Listen to this. And the Bible says that Jacob took his household and those that were with him and told him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. He says, I'm going back to Bethel to build an altar. And everyone gave the strange gods all their earrings, all they were in their ears. And the Bible says he hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. Listen to this, guys. He builds an altar. After he builds an altar, that then Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, who he was close to, and they buried her at Bethel, buried her beneath Bethel under, other, under an oak. And the Bible says that God appears to Jacob again. I want everyone, you need to find this in your Bible. Genesis 35 and 9. You need to hear this because this is what we're wrapping the session on. Genesis 35, 9. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Pandanaram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall thy name be. And he called his name Israel. Hold on. Didn't this moment just happen with the angel in Genesis 32? I want you to hear this. This is what I'm closing this on. God would not recognize Jacob's name change, listen, until his lifestyle caught up with his supernatural encounter. Because Jacob had an experience with an angel. The angels met him, and he met the angel and wrestled. But the problem is he still has strange gods in his hands. He had a supernatural encounter, but the problem is he still had strange gods in his hands. The problem was that he wasn't reconciled with his brother yet. Oh, you guys got to hear this. You guys got to hear this. It's, it's not enough to have a supernatural encounter. We've got to have that supernatural encounter change our lifestyle. One of the things that people say all the time is, oh, that was life-changing, that was life-changing. But really, have our lives been changed? Has it caused us to put the strange gods down? Has it caused us to throw the idols away? Has it caused us to turn our back on sin? Has it caused us to turn our back on anything that's tainted and anything that, that doesn't reflect God's image? Has it, has it caused us to put aside the things that are holding us back from going to the depths of God? God told him in Genesis 35, he said, your name is Jacob. But after I see you've reconciled with your brother, after I see you've put the strange gods away, after I see you went through a season of brokenness where Rebecca's nurse died, after I see you have built an altar, he said, now no more shall your name be called Jacob, but it's Israel. Because I see that your personal life has matched your supernatural experience. I'm issuing a challenge on this episode to let's make sure our walk matches our supernatural encounters. Let's make sure our walk matches our tears. Let's make sure our walk matches it. I preached a message years ago called Saturate Me, and I talked about how the children of Israel walked around Jericho for seven days, and they only shouted one day. I said, the problem is our generation, we shout for seven days, and we only walk with God one day. No wonder no walls come down. Because it's the walk that gives power to the shout. It's the walk that strengthens the shout. The shout has no substance if there's no walk behind it. But when there is a walk behind it, there brings an authenticity 
to the shout. And that's where cities are conquered from people that have learned how to walk with God. That's what I'm issuing out to you. Jacob learned how to walk with God. I'm going to do a part two of this um, on the next episode, which is going to bless you because I'm going to, to highlight how he walked with God and why God was just proud to be his God because of how the development and the pursuit of Jacob, even in his flaws, even in his lies, even in his deception, he pursued God and he allowed God to do a work with him. But there is, there was a walk that was developed. He didn't walk the same. And God, God wants our, whatever you see in your mind, whatever you want God to do, whatever promise God has given you, start getting your steps aligned with it. And God's going to recognize it and God's going to bless it and God's going to put his hand on it. He said, now your name's Israel. And he says, I'm God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall, shall be of thee. Kings shall come out of your loins. Now God's just speaking all of this prophecy. Now it's more than a name change. Now it's a prophetic word. Now it's, it's, it's fruit coming out. And the Bible says in verse 14, and Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he talked with them, even a pillar of stone, and poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake of the hymn, Bethel. Went back to that place. Back to the place where he met God in Genesis 28. But from Genesis 28 to Genesis 35, it is a different Jacob now. Because he had been through some stuff. He had been through loss. He had been through people trying to manipulate him, people trying to destroy him. He had been through all of it, and he used everything that came against him to strengthen his walk with God, that the circumstances that were there to try to destroy him, he used it to, to, to challenge him in his relationship with God, where there was a, a bond between him and God, a walk with God. I want to challenge everyone that's listening. Walk with God. Walk with God. And no, we're not like the Jews back during that time, the Judaism, because I'm so thankful that later he would say that, that the Jews are going to come to God and that if God grafted in the branches, that that, 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 that old stump, that it's going to be restored, the nation of Israel. And so there, there is hope for the nation of Israel. There's hope for all the Jewish people. But what we have to understand is that everyone that was used by God had to have their walk match their supernatural encounter. Abram get, hears the voice of God for the first time. Now God says, now get to walking. Follow me. Follow me. And in this journey, you're going to discover me in this journey. I'm going to make you more like me in this journey. You're not going to be Abram. You're going to be Abraham in this journey. You're not going to be Jacob. You're going to be Israel. That's the, that's the powerful thing. Let's follow him. Let's follow him. Let's follow him. That's all he told the disciples. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Don't get caught up, so caught up in the purpose of fishing for men that you forget the following. He said, follow me and I will make you. When we decide to follow and walk with God, he will make us what we need to be for this generation. He will make us what we need to be for our churches. He will make us what we need to be for our future but we have to follow him. Before he ordained them and sent them out two by two, the first command was he commanded them to be with him. And then they went forth to cast out devils. He said, be with me first and I'll send you to preach. Be with me first and I'll send you to cast out devils. I'll keep sending you to heal the sick. But the requirement is be with me, walk with me. And we see in the life of Jacob how this walk led to a transformation that I'm, I don't know about you, but I don't, I, I don't want to have all these supernatural encounters, but leaving the same way I came with strange gods in my hand, idols in my hand, things that I won't let go of.
that God is dealing with me about, but I'm holding on to it. I want an encounter where I put the strange gods down and where I build an altar and I find a prayer life and I find a way to worship, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but every day. And I'll close with this. The Bible says that John didn't know who the Messiah would be, but the Spirit gave him a clue. And the Spirit said, the one whom you see the Spirit like a dove descending and remaining on him, the same is the chosen one. That's found in John 1 as well. John didn't know who the Messiah would be, but the sign that God gave him was that when you see the Spirit descending like a dove and remaining on him, that is the chosen one. The, John says it this way in, in John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. The revelation is that he says, I, I'm going to know this is the chosen one by who I see the Spirit descending and remaining on. Here's the lesson. I'll wrap it up with this. See, the Spirit descends upon many, but it remains upon few. The Spirit descends upon many, but it remains upon few. See, the Spirit descends every, every church service. It, it'll descend every time you pray, every time you talk to him. But it's how we live that determines if he remains upon us. And the Spirit descends on Sunday, but it's how we walk that determines if it remains on us on Monday. Is the dove comfortable dwelling in your house? Is the dove comfortable is, does, is it a safe abode? Is, is, is it a safe place? Or as soon as you leave an encounter with God, do you just go back to cursing? Do you just go back to lying? Do you just go back to stealing? Do you just go back to your former lifestyle as if the encounter never happened? And now you have to live from Sunday to Sunday and get a descent every the spirit descends, the spirit descends. But you see, it's up to God if he descends, but it's up to you if he remains. I want to put the strange gods down. I want to put the old life down. And I want to take up my cross and follow him. Accept the challenge. You can do this. God's working on you. Climb this mountain. Because if God was willing to work with Jacob, he's willing to work with you. And that's going to be my part too. If God was willing to work with Jacob with all of his intricacies and failures, God is willing to work with you. Thank you for tuning in. Tune in to part two coming up next week. I love and appreciate you guys. we got some exciting news ahead. If you're ever in the Orlando area, come see us at Bible Center of Orlando. We've got some exciting news ahead for you. God bless. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, for more information, you can follow my social media page, Victor M. Jackson, or you can come visit us in Orlando, Florida at Bible Center of Orlando. Thank you for joining us. God bless.